0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Ultimate Summary of C.S. Lewis Podcast. My name is Kevin Livermore, author of the book The Theology of C.S. Lewis, a topical summary of his best work. I'd love for you to check that out. Uh, Amazon link is in the show notes. I also have a YouTube channel with short Christian controversial questions being answered. I'd love for you to check that out. Uh, Rate, review, like, subscribe. The book and the YouTube channel, I'd really appreciate it. Today we're going to be talking about C.S. Lewis's view on scripture and the doctrine of inspiration. So, C.S. Lewis's perspective on scripture came from his unique knowledge of ancient literature as a literary professional and his robust understanding of proper techniques and methods of contemporary biblical scholarship. He did not believe each sentence of the Old Testament is historically true. He says, quote, This I do not hold any more than St. Jerome did when he said that Moses described creation after the manner of a popular poet, as we should say, mythically, or than Calvin did when he doubted whether the story of Job was history or fiction. However, Lewis had this incarnational and sacramental view of scripture, which means he understood the Bible as both, quote, a vessel of the divine word and a profoundly human collection of documents, end quote. In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he says, "...the human qualities of the raw materials show through. Naivete, error, contradiction, even as in the cursing psalms, wickedness are not removed." the total result is not the word of god in the sense that every passage in itself gives in itself gives impeccable science or history it carries the word of god and we under grace with attention to tradition and to interpreters wiser than ourselves and with the use of such intelligence and learning as we may have receive that word and receive that word from it not by using it as an encyclopedia or an encyclical but by steeping ourselves in its tone or temper and so learning its overall message for we are taught that the incarnation itself proceeded not by the conversion of the godhead into flesh but by taking of the manhood into god in it human life becomes the vehicle of divine life If the scriptures proceed not by conversion of God's word into literature, but by taking up of a literature to be the vehicle of God's word, this is not anomalous. So this is a great summary of Lewis's view on scripture. He is acknowledging human authors with human emotions and honesty, and simply saying it isn't always, quote, the word of God in that regard. For example, if a psalm is cursing God or is doubtful of God's goodness, his provision, his faithfulness, etc., that probably isn't something that God would say about himself. However, as a literary scholar in all types of genres of literature, Lewis understood the complicated nature of the ancient writings, and he aimed to interpret them accordingly. So the incarnation of Scripture is this idea that God's word, his truth, is all over the Bible but it was nevertheless still written by human authors. Consider what Lewis says in one of his letters. I myself think of inspiration as analogous to the incarnation, as in Christ a human soul and body are taken up and made the vehicle of deity. So in scripture, a mass of human legend, history, moral teaching, etc., are taken up and made the vehicle of God's word. End quote. He said, even though the Bible is a human book, so to speak, it has been, quote, raised by God above itself, qualified by God to serve purposes which of itself it would not have served, end quote. So Lewis says the Bible is not the conversion of God's word into a literature, but the taking up of a literature to be a vehicle of God's word. Scripture should not be read as if God literally wrote it without human involvement nor should it be read as a purely human book, such as a dictionary or encyclopedia. Rather, it should be read as a divinely inspired text written by humans who were walking with God but still had human agendas and a limited capacity to understand. However, as Lewis noted, this collection of books, letters, poems, and narratives is the vehicle of God's word. It is one of the formats God chose to deliver his truth to humanity. In the bottom half of the aforementioned quote from his book, Reflections on the Psalms, that I just mentioned, uh, Lewis is essentially saying that God did not cause humans to become robots when they were writing Scripture as if they were possessed to write every detail exactly the way God would, as there are literary, cultural, historical, and sociological nuances that must not be ignored. This was one reason I trust, admire, and appreciate Lewis's view on scripture. He understands literature and doesn't interpret it as a robotically written trance-induced book, like the Book of Mormon or the Quran could easily be deemed. He, He basically is saying these people weren't in a trance with their eyes looking in the back of their heads where they had no control of their hand, just writing things in a trance controlled by God. That's not how it was. That's not kind of what happened as kind of the Book of Mormon and the Quran could easily be deemed. Lewis's sensitivity to the Bible's literary qualities is one of his greatest strengths as a lay theologian, said Philip Reichen, the president of Wheaton, Wheaton College. So Lewis says the Bible did not come to us directly from heaven like the Book of Mormon allegedly did. For he says, quote, we might have expected we may think we should have preferred an unrefracted light giving us an ultimate truth in systematic form, something we could have tabulated and memorized and relied on like the multiplication table. In other words, Lewis is saying to our minds as humans, an incarnational Bible seems no doubt an untidy and leaky vehicle. But since this is what God has done, this we must conclude was best. That's what Lewis says. That says, quote, directly. So, he says again, An incarnational Bible seems, no doubt, an untidy and leaky vehicle, but since this is what God has done, this, we must conclude, was best. End quote. Since the literary, cultural, historical, and sociological nuances of Scripture cannot be ignored if one wishes to interpret a passage properly, Lewis mentions how this human authorship is analogous to the incarnation of Christ. Just as, the inter, just as the eternal Christ became flesh and dwelled among us, John 1, 14, God utilized human methodology and styles of literature to communicate to us. God gave us a very human book, just like he gave us a fully human and fully God Savior. For Lewis says, the same divine humility which decreed that God should become a baby at a peasant woman's breast and later an arrested field preacher in the hands of the Roman police decreed also that he should be preached in a vulgar, prosaic, and unliterary language. If you can stomach the one, you can stomach the other. When we expect that it should have come before the world in all the beauty that we now feel in, an, in the authorized version— we are as wide of the mark as the Jews were in expecting that the Messiah would come as a great earthly king. End quote. Again, in this incarnational understanding of Scripture, Lewis is saying how all Scripture points to Christ, especially the Old Testament. This coincides with what Scripture says in places such as Colossians one fifteen through twenty, Ephesians one, John one, first John one. And Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three, which says in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Truly, Christ is the lens through which we interpret and understand the Old Testament. For Christ is the one who made the universe and holds it together and is the exact representation of God's being, as Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 say. So we look to Christ whenever we have doubts or need help determining God's nature or character. We also look to Christ for determining the importance of an Old Testament event being historical or mythical, or if it matters at all, in light of Christ. For example, Lewis argues Job, Esther, and or Jonah do not have to be historical in order for the larger truth to be conveyed. Regarding this Christological or Christotelic, that is Christ as the end goal from the Greek word telos meaning end goal or purpose, regarding this Christotelic view of scripture, author David Williams says, Lewis stands in good company in thinking about in thinking along these lines. The good teachers from which Lewis learned this hermeneutic are undoubtedly Aquinas, Bernard of Clairvaux, Augustine, Origen, and Irenaeus, not to mention the apostles and Christ himself. In short, Lewis is standing within the mainstream tradition of pre-Reformation theological interpretation. But Lewis is not simply striking a traditionalist posture. Like a scribe trained for the kingdom, he is prepared to bring forth treasures new and old. By positioning himself within the grand tradition of pre-modern theological interpretation, Lewis frees himself to follow his highly attuned modern literary literary critical instincts regarding the historicity of much of the Old Testament while simultaneously upholding a robust belief in the historicity of the Incarnation and a vital theological hermeneutic, End quote. So David Williams believes this to be true because of what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory, rather a speech as it was originally um, given at a church near Oxford University, But uh, Lewis says, The Christian story is like watching something come gradually into focus. First, it hangs in the clouds of myth and ritual, vast and vague. Then it condenses, grows hard and in a sense, small as a historical event in first century Palestine. The earliest stratum of the Old Testament contains many truths in a form which I take to be legendary or even mythical. Hanging in the clouds, but gradually the truth condenses, becomes more and more historical. From things like Noah's Ark or the sun standing still upon upon Agilon, you come down to the court memoirs of King David, Finally, you reach the New Testament and history reigns supreme and the truth is incarnate and incarnate here is more than a metaphor. It is not an accidental resemblance that that what from the point of view of being is stated in the form of God became man should involve from the but from the point of view of human knowledge, the statement myth become fact or myth became fact End quote. By, by this, Lewis does not mean everything in the Old Testament is myth and or historically untrue and inaccurate. He is simply using a few words to describe the overarching theme of how he generally interprets the historicity of the Bible as a whole. It seems Lewis would take a case-by-case approach, or a specific chapter and verse approach, when determining what events were true and what were only pointing to a larger truth. For example, Lewis said, As Christians, we still believe, as I do, that all Holy Scripture is in some sense, though not all parts of it in the same sense, the Word of God. End quote. Along these same lines, when asked about Jonah in the Old Testament, Lewis responded in a letter to Corbin Carnell dated April 4th, 1953, there seems to be an almost equal objection to the position taken up in my footnote and to its alternative of attrib- att- attributing the same kind and degree of historicity to all books of the Bible. You see the question about Jonah and the great fish does not simply turn does not turn simply on intrinsic probability. The point is that the whole book of Jonah has to me the air of being a moral romance a quite different kind of thing from, say, the account of King David or the New Testament narratives, not pegged like them into any historical situation. In what sense does the Bible present the Jonah story as historical? Of course, it doesn't say this is fiction, but then neither does our Lord say that the unjust judge, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son are fiction. I would put Esther in the same category as Jonah for the same reason. How does a denial a doubt of their historicity lead logically to a similar denial of New Testament miracles? Supposing as I think in this case that sound critical reading that sound critical reading revealed different kinds of narrative in the Bible, surely it would be illogical to suppose that these different kinds should all be read in the same way. This is not a rationalistic approach to miracles. Where I doubt the historicity of an Old Testament narrative, I never do so on the ground that the miraculous as such is incredible. Nor does it deny a unique sort of inspiration. Allegory, parable, romance, and lyric might be inspired as well as chronicle. I wish I could direct you to a good book on the subject, but I don't know one. End quote. So the bottom line is that for Lewis, without the incarnation of God in Christ, in Jesus of Nazareth, pointing us to all truth, it would be difficult to rely on the historical authenticity of every event described in the Old Testament, and I would argue it would not even matter. For if the incarnation never happened, then the contemporary Jewish understanding of the Torah and the whole Old Testament for some is justified. For Lewis, Christ is one of the primary lenses, so to speak, we use to see the to see and interpret the Old Testament. So we view the Old Testament and see it and interpret it through the lens of Christ. It is important to note, Lewis did not have a negative view of Scripture by any means. He placed a very high importance on biblical truth for Christian discipleship and maturity. He thought of Holy Scripture as, quote, "...the supreme authority for faith and practice." and how reading the Bible had life-giving influence for the Christian, end quote. In Reflections of the Psalms, Lewis says Scripture is, quote, holy, inspired, and the oracles of God. So it is important to understand that the context of what some may interpret as Lewis's harsh criticism scripture of Scripture. Lewis was not a critic of Scripture like the liberals of his day. He was so anti-liberal that the liberals accused him of being a fundamentalist, to which he replied I have been suspected of being what is called a fundamentalist. That is because I never regard any narrative as unhistorical, simply on the ground that it includes the miraculous. Some people find the miraculous so hard to believe that they cannot imagine any reason for any acceptance of it other than a prior belief that every sentence of the Old Testament has historical or scientific truth. But this I do not hold. So Lewis did not see himself as a fundamentalist or a liberal For he, quote, occupies that sparse territory between fundamentalists and modern critics that is continuous, contiguous to, but does not coincide with evangelicalism. On those same lines, Lewis's doctrine of scripture is not merely adjacent to, but often overlaps with evangelical theology. One area where evangelicals surely agree with Lewis in his views is that we should read Holy Scripture on its own terms fully submitting to its authority and completely surrendering to God's will for our lives.